Well, long ago, an obscure boy was born into a humble family in Bethlehem. But then he was anointed and announced to be the royal king, despite being of humble appearance, that nothing should attract people to him, that God sees not as a man sees, but looks at the heart. And this one, before his reign, faced a fearsome enemy in a single-handed combat with the fate of the people and the nation riding in the balance. And despite the overwhelming apparent odds, rose victorious over the foe and came to reign as a redeemer and a king over God's people. Who am I talking about? Now, if your mind thought of David, born in Bethlehem of a humble shepherd's family, anointed by the prophet Samuel, and then faced off Goliath, defeating him, thus reinforcing God's hand upon him in the eyes of the people so that they would submit to him as their redeemer and their king. And if you guessed David, you'd be on the target. But if hearing Matthew 4, 1 to 11 is still ringing in your ears, you know that really David was anticipating Jesus, who was anointed by the Holy Spirit as God's Messiah, who was announced by the Father to be his son, and then faces off in single-handed combat with a foe much more fearsome than Goliath, an enemy much more experienced than the Philistine. And not only unarmored like David, but unarmed, except for the word of God and the spirit of God. And not just the fate of the people, but the eternal fate of the souls of humanity rested in the balance. David was encouraged by the surrounding armies looking down, well-fed presumably for the fight. Jesus is going to be in solitude after 40 days of fasting and yet show himself victorious because God is demonstrating to everybody the worthiness and the faithfulness of his son so that we would all the more readily submit to him as our king and embrace him as our savior. So that's our story we get to hear today. And so I invite you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4, 1 to 11, that in many of your Bibles may have the heading, The Temptations of Jesus, but I think is more uh, accurate to say it's about the faithfulness of the Son that is going to be not tested, but proven through the temptation accounts. Look at Matthew 4, 1 and 2. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. The then connects this account with the episode that just preceded it, the baptism of Jesus. So we had left Jesus as a babe, and then we find him again as an adult, entering into the ministry of John the Baptist. He goes down into the water. As he comes out, the heavens are split apart. The Holy Spirit descends as a dove, and the Father pronounces, This is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. And right after that, the temptation account follows. Uh, Mark makes it very specific. Immediately, Jesus went into the wilderness. Actually, says was impelled or driven by the Spirit into the wilderness. We are intended to connect these two accounts because Jesus is going to be replaying in his life the failed temptations of Israel, but showing himself successful and faithful where God's son Israel failed and gave in. The Judean wilderness, if you just Google the word wilderness, you're going to get images of mountaintops in Wyoming, California, and Colorado thick with trees. But that's not what we should have in our, in our minds. Here's some images of the Judean wilderness. It is dry, it is desiccated, it is barren. 
There is nothing there to find protection from the sun or the elements. Mark tells us it was filled with wild beasts. Jewish tradition says it was filled with demons. And at least on this account is going to be the place of not just the demons, but their Lord, the devil. And the significance again of this, before we move into the individual temptations, is that Jesus, the Son of God, is going to prove faithful where Israel, the Son of God, proved faithless. That Hosea said, out of Egypt I called my son. We saw that text applied to Jesus, but earlier it was applied to Israel. And as they were brought out of Egypt through the Red Sea, that crossing of the Red Sea is likened to their baptism, which is followed by their temptation. Listen to the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 10. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, the Red Sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They were identified with Moses as the Redeemer, and that passing through the Red Sea is likened to their baptism. And all drank of the same spiritual drink. They were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. At the beginning of the wilderness wanderings, there was a miraculous bringing forth of water from a rock. At the end of the wilderness wanderings, there was a miraculous bringing forth of water from a rock. And so certain Jews said, well, the rock followed them. And that's unlikely. You shouldn't imagine Israel, and then here's kind of this rock rolling along the way. But there was, at the beginning and the end, the miracles provision of God, and in between the daily giving of manna, the spiritual food, and Paul understood that this represented Christ's faithful providing of all of our spiritual needs. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased. In fact, they didn't enter the promised land, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Paul goes on to say, These things that happened with Israel happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. This is an account of the golden calf that Moses is on Mount Sinai in the presence of God, receiving the law of God by which they could receive the blessing of God. And while all this is occurring, they're down below falling into idolatrous immorality. Nor let us act immorally as the generation after them, as some did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Do you remember when Balak called Balaam to curse God's people? And God turned every curse into a blessing? And then once the blessing was resound, uh, still resounding, and we get this prophecy of God raising up a future king over Judah, it says that the Moabite women enticed the Israelite men into immoral idolatry. They immediately fell into temptation of the flesh and into idolatry, and God slew 23,000 in a day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, Korah's rebellion, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Time and again, Israel was tested in the wilderness, and time and again, they failed. As did Adam, as did Noah, as did Abram, as did Isaac, as did Jacob, as did, as did, as did everyone until Jesus. But the wilderness wanderings were a testing of God to know their heart. We're told this explicitly in Deuteronomy chapter 8. Moses says, You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, so that He might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep His commandments or not. 
He humbled you and let you be hungry, fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, so that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Your clothing didn't wear out, your feet didn't swell those 40 years. Thus you are to know in your heart that the Lord your God was disciplining you, training you just as a man disciplines or trains his son. Therefore, you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in all his ways and fear him. So here was Israel's history. They were called out of Egypt as God's son and they were baptized by going through the Red Sea. They were led into the wilderness for 40 years so that God would test them to see if they would prove obedient, that they would learn the lesson to obey God no matter what. And they failed. They gave in to the indulgence of the flesh. They doubted God's presence to protect them. And they indulged in idolatry. And so what is God going to do in Jesus? You remember he went from Bethlehem into where? Egypt. And then Hosea 11.1 that was applied to Israel was applied to Jesus. Out of Egypt, I called my son. And what was the first thing that happens in his adult ministry? He's baptized. And right after the baptism, what would come next? Testing. In the wilderness. But Jesus is going to prove faithful where Israel and everyone else before him proved faithless. That's the point of this account. It's not we're we'll be hanging on there on the edge of our seat. Oh, let him stay true. Let him stay true. Let him stay true. It's intended to show us the faithfulness of the Son so that in full reliance we would entrust ourselves to Him and then long to be like Him in His obedience. That's what's going on here. Uh, reading this account this week, I thought of two things. One, if you know the story of King Arthur and Camelot and how Merlin plunged the sword Excalibur into the stone and that only the true heir of, uh, what was his father's name? The, the Pendragon, Uther the Pendragon. And that many would-be claimants tried to pull the sword from the stone, but they couldn't until this obscure figure, just an aide to his brother, came to go and to help him. And he grabbed the stone and he pulled it up. And what did all the people know? There's the true king. Because he passed the test that everybody else failed. Uh, the other episode that comes to mind is before we moved to Denton in 1980, we lived in Hastings, Nebraska. And we lived on Lake Hastings Drive, right across the street from Lake Hastings. And in the winter in Nebraska, the ice would freeze over and the neighborhood kids would eagerly want to get out and skate and play around on the ice. But the parents understandably had some trepidation about us getting out on the ice too soon. So when the ice was sufficiently thick, a neighbor would drive either his pickup truck or a tractor. My memory is fuzzy on this point but he would drive his vehicle onto the ice with all the parents watching to let them know the ice is safe. If it will hold up a two-ton truck or a multi-ton tractor, it will bear the weight of your boys playing around on the ice. Now, the wife of the man wasn't sitting there, let the ice hold, let the ice hold, let the ice hold. It wasn't a test, it was a demonstration. It was a public proof that this is solid, this is reliable. That's the point of the temptation account. A temptation from Satan's perspective, a testing, a proving, a demonstration from God's perspective. Does that make sense? So with that big picture in mind, let's look at these temptations. The first which comes in verses 3 and 4. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. 
Now, the tempter is elsewhere in this passage identified as the devil, which means the accuser, the adversary. It's the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Satan. This figure is first introduced to us in Scripture in Genesis chapter 3, where in the guise of a serpent, he came to Eve and said, Did God indeed say? And put in her mind to disbelieve God, to doubt his goodness to make him think that he was withholding something good for her, something maybe even necessary for her. And ever since, he appears in Scripture as one who tries to destroy God's people by separating them from their God, by leading them into temptation, because the only thing that separates us from God is sin. He is the tempter. Here's other biblical labels for him. He is called the accuser of the brethren, Beelzebul, the adversary, the dragon, the enemy, the father of lies, the murderer, the serpent of old, the prince of this world, and the evil one. Now Satan, like the rest of creation, is a created being. He was actually made by God through Christ because Christ in him all things were made and apart from him nothing has been made that has been made. He's now facing off with his creator. And we shouldn't view this as a pure match. C.S. Lewis says, don't think of God and Satan as counterparts. That's dualism. If you want a counterpart for Satan, think of Michael or Gabriel. Christ and God and the Spirit are in a completely different category. But this created spirit being rebelled against God and led a third of the angels in that rebellion with him. And he is a defeated fallen foe. But out of spite, he is going to wreak as much havoc and suffering and destruction and pain as possible until the day of his doom comes. Uh, some of you are old enough, most of you probably in this audience, to remember the Iraq War. And when Saddam Hussein was driven out of Kuwait, what did his fleeing forces do? They set all the oil wells alight. Why? Just out of spite. Just out of pure spite and hate. And that's what Satan is trying to do. And now he comes to Jesus and offers him a temptation. If you are the Son of God. Now, the, the Son of God is what God the Father just pronounced the Son to be at the baptism. We're intended to still hear that. God said, this is my Son. Satan knows that. He's not doubting that. Jesus knows that. He's not in doubt about that. This is what is in Greek called a first-class condition. we got a couple Greek students in here. Which means the if can actually be translated as since. Since you are the Son of God, God said it, I know it, you know it, then. In other words, not are you the Son, but what kind of Son will you be? Will you be the kind of self-serving Son that will use your powers and prerogatives to satisfy yourself even if it displeases the Father? Will you be a Son like Israel? Will you be a Son like David? Will you be a Son like Solomon? Will you be a son like Saul? What kind of son of God will you be? And seeing some presumably bread-shaped rocks after 40 days of fasting, Jesus hungered, turn these into bread. And the issue is not power. We're going to see later Jesus feed 5,000 Jews with a few loaves of bread. 4,000 Gentiles with a few loaves of bread and fish. Jesus can turn hundreds of gallons of water into wine. At a word, he can take empty fishing nets after a night of futile fishing and he can fill them to the breaking point. The issue isn't the power. 
The issue is the prerogative. And Jesus did not yet have permission from the Father to eat, is I think what we're taken to have here. His flesh wanted to eat. There's nothing in it itself wrong with eating unless the Father had said, don't eat yet. Is there anything wrong with eating pork or shellfish? No, unless you're a Jew living under the Mosaic law, and then there is. Is there anything intrinsically wrong with eating the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil? Well, not necessarily unless God says not to. Uh, do you remember in 1 Kings 13? So Solomon dies, and his son Rehoboam makes a foolish stance to be even harsher than his dad, and the kingdom splits between the northern ten tribes and the southern two tribes. And God sends a prophet to the king of the northern tribes, Jeroboam, and his hand dries up. Do you remember? And then the prophet is heading south because God told him, don't stay the night in the north and don't eat a bite of their food. But another prophet comes to him and says, are you God's prophet? Yes. Come and eat at my house. I can't eat at your house because God told me not to. Well, God told me that it's okay. And the prophet went into his house and ate. And do you remember what happened to him? He was slain by a lion who didn't eat the prophet. He just stood there at his side as a sign of what happens if those who disobey God. Obedience to God is what matters. That's what's going on here. And so Jesus says to him, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. He's quoting Deuteronomy here, that God provided manna for them. They were to trust in God as their provider. That whenever we find ourselves in want, our tendency, our temptation is to act on our own behalf to meet that need because presumably God won't because he hasn't thus far. So Abram and Sarah promised a child they're going to wait until the waiting got long. And then what did they do? Let's help God out. Let's take your Egyptian maid, Hagar. Let's let you go into her. Then there's a child, Ishmael. And we're still living with the implications of that decision, right? And we understand this temptation. There's a need. There's not immediate provision on my timetable. I know. Let's help God out. And we're not to do that. We're to wait on the Lord. And in this case, Jesus knew that his fast had not ended, and so he refused to obey. The priority isn't the cravings of our flesh, the indulging of our appetites, but the obedience to our God. That's the priority. Do you remember in John chapter 4 when Jesus is in Samaria at a well and the disciples go into town to get food? And while they're getting groceries, Jesus talks to the woman at the well, and then they come back. They're shocked that he's talking to a woman, much less a Samaritan woman. And they said, Master, food. And here's what he says. I have food to eat that you do not know about. And so the disciples were saying to one another, No one brought him anything to eat, did he? Did he have a kind bar? You know, did he have jerky that we didn't know about? <laughs> Diner dash? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That's the priority. You were concerned about your stomachs. I was concerned about the salvation of a Samaritan woman. And I will obey God, even if that is physically, temporarily uncomfortable for me. And Jesus is going to pass the first test, the appeal to the flesh. And so Satan tries a different tack. The devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written... 
He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. The first temptation took place in the wilderness. The second and the third take place elsewhere. And it's not made clear to here, was this teleportation? Uh, is this a visionary experience? It doesn't really matter, but we're not told what that is, nor are we told specifically where on the temple Jesus stood. Uh, Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, talks about one particular corner that overlooked the Kidron Valley, and it was a 450-foot drop. And jo Josephus said, looking 45 stories down, you got dizzy just looking at it. And so it may have been that. Some people speculate that because it was in the temple, maybe this was the special presence of God because God's presence is in the temple. Others have said, well, surely the temple was crowded with people, so would the devil's tempting him to do is to cast himself down. He will miraculously land. The crowds will rally to him. And then he can lead an overthrow of Rome without going to the cross. But we're not told any of that. What we are told is it was a high enough fall that it would have been fatal without divine angelic intervention. That's the point. And the misuse of scripture is, didn't God say that his angels would bear you up and not let your foot strike the stone? But of course, the text didn't say if you leap off tall buildings and demand God to intervene, that you put God to the test. And interestingly, when so, uh, Satan quotes Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12, he doesn't quote verse 13, because listen to what that verse says. You will tread upon the lion and the cobra, the young lion and the serpent you will trample down. <laughs> That's a pretty uncomfortable verse for Satan. It brings back Genesis 3.15 and all this anticipation of the crushing of his head. But the issue is, will Jesus put the Lord to the test? Make himself, show himself in a dramatic, miraculous way. And again, the issue is not power, but the use of that power. Jesus actually is the king of angels. A little bit later on, he's going to say that the Son of Man at his return will send for his angels to separate the wicked from the elect for the day of judgment. The Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and repay every person according to their deeds. To whom do the angels belong? Jesus. <laughs> Those are his angels. He made them. He is Lord of them. They could easily come to his beckoning at his bidding should he demand to do so. In fact, later, do you remember the Garden of Gethsemane? The soldiers come, Judas betrays him with a kiss, and as the soldiers come in to take Jesus captive, Peter pulls out his sword, cuts off the ear of Malthus, the high priest's slave. And what does he say? Put up your sword. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword. Do you not know that I can call down 20,000 legions of angels? if I so desired. A legion was 6,000 soldiers. So at a word, there could be 72,000 angels in the garden and show those soldiers what intimidation and abuse of power looks like. But he didn't because it wasn't the Father's will for him. He would not forego the cross just because he could escape the pain and the suffering and the shame. He was going to fulfill the Father's will until the very end. The issue isn't power, the issue is prerogative. As Jesus says to him, on the other hand, it is written, you shall not put your Lord, your God to the test. God will sometimes test us to prove us to see what's in our heart. Will we obey him or not? That's what he did with Abram. Go and take your son, your only son, 
Isaac, whom you love, and make a sacrifice to him. Remember, he pulled out the knife. They took the three days hike. They went to Mount Moriah. He bound him on the thing, arranged all the wood, took out his knife. The angel stayed his hand. And God says, now I know that you love me above all else because you were willing to obey me even in this seemingly mad act and sacrificing your only son. But we don't get to put God to the test. That really out of doubt, I'm going to demand that he show himself in a miraculous way to prove his existence to me, to prove his faithful presence to me, to show me in my doubts that he is my protector. This is what Israel did at Massa. This is the name that Moses gave the place where Israel put uh, God to the test, and that's the background to that quote. Here's what it says in Exodus 17. The people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted. They grumbled against Moses and said, why have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? They blame Moses. They really blame God who sent Moses. Did you bring us into the de desert to kill us? In other words, God, you're not good. You're not a good daddy because right now we're in fear. And unless you alleviate that fear, we're going to deny that you are a good father. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. You shall strike the rock. Water will come out of it. And he named that place Masa, which means testing, and Meribah, which means quarrel, because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel, because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Now what's silly about this is, what are some other ways that they could have known that the Lord was among them? Well, there was the cloud by day. There was the food by night. There, there's the manna crumbs all over their garments. There's the fact that they were miraculously delivered out of Egypt. But that's what we do, don't we? We see God's goodness, we follow His will, and then things get hard and we doubt Him. And we want to test Him. But Jesus refuses to do that just to impress Satan. And He says, no, I will not put the Lord your God, the God to the test. So Satan tries a third way. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. Now, there's several observations worth making here. First of all, what did he show him of the world? Its glory. Not its sordidness and its sin. Not its contentions and corruption. Not its perversion and pollution. He's like some cheap used car salesman putting the used car smell in the car to make you not listen to the engine too closely. There's a lot to this world that isn't glorious. And of course, Jesus made this world. He's the king of heaven. This is a pretty pathetic temptation to offer, but it's the last effort that Satan can make. Secondly, notice that the devil claims to be able to offer the world. And nothing in the Bible seems to deny that claim. That after the fall, the devil has been given temporary authority over this world until God comes back and reclaims it to himself. John 12, 31, Jesus says, Now judgment is upon this world, and the ruler of this world will be cast out. John 14, 30, The ruler of this world is coming, but he has nothing in me. John 16, 11, The ruler of this world has been judged. 1 John 5, 19, We know that we are of God. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Right now, there is a, rebe a rebel on the throne. There is a tyrant 
over God's kingdom. And God in his sovereignty is allowing this temporarily. Although he has been overthrown by Christ who will come and cast him into the lake of fire someday, right now this wicked world is in Satan's possession. And it's a terrible world because of it. But nothing in this world is worth giving up your soul to God. Remember what Jesus said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world if it costs you your soul? And now think about when Jesus made that statement, he had been offered the whole world and turned it down. He knew what he was saying, that anything in this world that you might think is worth more than obeying God has an expiration date on it. And after that comes eternity. Nothing in this world is worth rejecting God. Not your boyfriend or your girlfriend, not your adulteress or your mistress, not any accumulated wealth you can get through embezzlement or theft, not any abandoning of your family because of the supposed freedom it'll give you, no rebellion against your parents because of the supposed strictness of their rule over you, no indulgence, no appetite, no satisfaction of any itch, no ambition, no fame, nothing in this world is, world is worth your soul. And so Jesus says, don't do it. I know what was in that offer. I was offered that. Do as I do and say no. And thirdly, Jesus knew that the whole world was going to be his anyway. Do you remember at the end of Matthew, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. He was going to have the world anyway. So what was the temptation? To get the earth without the cross. To get the kingdom without the grave. To get the glory without the suffering. All you have to do is reject God. And Jesus wouldn't do it. And we face that same temptation too, don't we? This thing is hard in my life and I would like to avoid that. So where's the shortcut? Where's the way out? How do I cut that off so that I don't have to face that? But we obey God's will to the end, no matter what's in that path or what stands before us, because God's will is ultimately best for our life. And those who remain faithful will enjoy him forever and forever in eternity. And Jesus, who had tolerated Satan's sulfurous presence up to this point, now challenged with this blasphemous offer, says, Be gone, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And what did Satan do when Jesus said, be gone? He departed. There was never a real challenge of power. <clears throat> Satan tried that when he enticed Herod to try to slay the infants. At any moment, Jesus could have sent him away or never allowed him in his presence at all. Why did he endure it three times? In order to prove to us that he is the true son in whom we should entrust our souls for our salvation because he's the only one that remained faithful and to subordinate ourselves, to subject ourselves to his rule as our king because he's the only one worthy to rule over us. Jesus is God's faithful son. So here are seven takeaways from this passage for us to consider. First of all, Jesus and Jesus only is the faithful son of God. Uh, Mark Twain said, I can resist anything but temptation. <laughs> and isn't that a great statement? <laughs> because we are not good at resisting temptation. Have you all ever seen the Stanford Marshmallow Test? Where they take these young children, they put them in a room with no distractions, they give them a marshmallow and said, you can have this, or if you wait five minutes, you can have two. 
or depending on the test, it's a pretzel stick, it's a cookie, whatever tempts the child. And then the video camera, the adult leaves the room, and the video camera's on the kids, and they're alone with a marshmallow. And they're told not to eat it. And so some will lick it, some will try to cur you know, take a little bit out of it, and they, they yield because that's us. We can resist everything but temptation. We fail in temptation every day. Our patience with our kids, our tone with our spouse, our attitude at work, our demeanor in traffic. Every day we fail God because we all have fallen flesh. The only one who has ever been perfectly, perpetually faithful and true is Jesus Christ. And therefore we trust in him. He is the spotless lamb who is able to take away the sins of the world. And he is our champion who as our representative fulfilled God's righteous requirements of the law and we must trust in him and his righteousness, not in ours and our righteousness because there is none righteous, no, not one. Only Jesus Christ. That's what this account proves. So submit yourselves to Christ and give yourselves to Christ. Secondly, there is a spiritual realm with spiritual beings some of whom actively seek to separate us from God. Peter, who himself was sifted by Satan, <laughs> says, Beware, the devil prowls around like a lion looking for someone to devour. That's us. We sleep, the devil doesn't. We get tired, the devil doesn't. There is an enemy who seeks us woe by separating us from God, by tempting us to sin. And that is a reality that we must be aware of. And therefore, Paul says, our war is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers of principalities. Therefore, put on the full armor of God. Make sure that you gird your loins with God's truth, that you put on the breastplate of righteousness, that you put on the helmet of the knowledge of your salvation, the feet of the good news, the shield of faith, the sword of the word. And every day we have to do that. So I've tried to make it a habit for myself. I'm a little bit quirky, and I acknowledge that. But when I disrobe in the morning, I think about putting off the old man. And as I get dressed, I think about putting on the armor of God. I'm girding my loins with truth. Here comes that breastplate of righteousness, because I know there is an enemy waiting for me. Uh, so I stopped by the Wells household this week to borrow a steamer so that my wife could steam my daughter's... My, uh, Bridesmaid's dress. And Daniel Wells met me at the door wearing a football helmet. And of course it was the Longhorns because he's being raised right. And Daniel goes everywhere in a football helmet. But a football player wouldn't go out on the field, wouldn't be allowed on the field without armor. Because that's a dangerous sport. There's people out there trying to hurt you. Or hockey. Or military. Or law enforcement officers. There's real dangerous people out there. You better armor up. Well, that's true of us as well. And we are naive and foolish to disbelieve that or to forget that. We have an enemy. There are, thirdly, some interesting parallels between the temptations of Jesus, Eve, and what 1 John says are the three broad categories in which we're tempted. 1 John 2, 15 and 6, uh, through 17 says, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. 
The world is passing away and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. The lust of the flesh, the appetites of the flesh. Eve also was tested. That tree is good. It's good for food. She started salivating. And likewise, there was a similar appeal to Jesus. The lust of the eyes. See how pleasing this is? Look at all the kingdoms of the world. And we also are tempted by coveting, aren't we? You thought your Corolla was nice till your neighbor pulled in with the Camry. And then the person came in with the Avalon. And doggone it, the one at the end of the corner got the Lexus. And then here, and we covet, we see, we want, rather than being content with what God has given us. And then there's the pride of life. Eve, this fruit is good to make you knowledgeable, to make you wise. You will be like God. Uh, and it, with Jesus, you can save, you can know God's power and experience this directly. You know, it's interesting. We see Jesus doing countless miracles for others, healing, multiplying food, providing uh, water, providing wine. He serves and uses his divine powers for others. There is not one recorded instance of him ever using it for himself. Of It was a cold, frosty morning in Galilee, so he just made the fire start itself. Or he made the fish jump into the fire pan by itself. He serves others, but he doesn't abuse that power for himself. But there is this consistency. So the Hebrews can say that he has been tempted in all things, not in every single way, but in these broad categories that we're tempted in. And we can learn, like him, fourthly, that what, what, what means do we have to resist temptation? Well, the same ones that Jesus used. We have the Spirit of God, like him, and we have the Word of God, like him. Jesus didn't pull apart his humanity and transfigure himself so that his divinity intimidated Satan into fleeing. What did Jesus use to resist temptation? He quoted Scripture three times, and the Holy Spirit abided on him. We have that same spirit, don't we? And we have that same word, don't we? Do we know the word well enough to use it? Hardly. And do we rely on the spirit to deliver us? Unfortunately and frequently. Uh, I read an account this week of a pastor who gave counsel. There was a young man in his life who was struggling with pornography. And so he says, what I want you to do is memorize a verse on lust. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that is that you abstain from sexual morality. First Thess. And the next time you're tempted to watch porn, I want you to repeat that verse five times and then see if you still want to. And it helped him and alleviated it. So if you are struggling with patience, memorize a passage on patience. And when you're beginning to feel impatience, recall that to yourself. And there's strength in that. There's power in that. There's deliverance in that. And then we acknowledge that we of ourselves cannot stand, and so we need to appeal to God for the power to deliver us, and He does. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, take heed lest you, uh, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common in a man, and God is faithful, who with the temptation will provide the way of escape also. Let he who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. Better men and women than you and I have fallen to temptation. We're foolish to resist it, to think we can resist it. David fell, Solomon fell, others fell. We should best not expose ourselves to it. And that's the next point. The best way to resist temptation is to avoid temptation. Jesus will say in a couple of chapters in the Sermon on the Mount of the Lord's Prayer, pray then in this way, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. That's especially significant in light of Matthew 4, isn't it? 
the evil one will try to tempt us like Jesus. And Jesus is saying, I faced that battle. And let me tell you, you're not up to it. <laughs> you're not up to it. So make it your daily prayer, Lord, lead me not into temptation. In the garden, when the disciples couldn't even stay awake and pray with him for an hour, he says, keep watching and praying that you may not enter temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We're not intended to see how closely we can flirt with temptation and not yield. We're intended to flee it, to keep ourselves far from it, because we are weak and we will yield to it if we expose ourselves to it. I'll stop there on that. Sixthly, Jesus aids the tempted and will enable us to hold us fast. Hebrews 2 says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he also gives help to the descendant of Abram. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things. He became a man so that he might become a merciful, he understands, and faithful, as he had always been, high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He satisfied God's righteous wrath on our sins because he, is, as the sinless one, was the substitute for them. Since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. When you're tempted, Jesus knows what that was like. But unlike us, he resisted. And he will come to our aid if we ask him. <clears throat> Hebrews 4 says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. In the face of public persecution and shame and resistance, don't deny the faith. Don't capitulate or compromise. Hold fast. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with us in our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are. And yet, unlike us, is without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. When you're tempted, don't avoid God in shame. Go to God for grace. When you're tempted and maybe even beginning to fall, don't avoid God in guilt. Go to God for grace. He empathizes. He sympathizes. And Christ has opened the way to the throne of grace that is available for us when we seek it. And seventhly and finally, if you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior, would you please give yourself to Him now, today? Because no one is righteous but Him. God is perfect. No one is perfect. So no one will meet the standards of the perfect God on the day of judgment. Our only hope is to place ourselves in Jesus Christ who was perfect, who was perfectly righteous, who died on the cross for our sins as the spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And our only hope to avoid an eternity apart from God in hell, our only hope of spending an eternity with God in heaven is acknowledging that we are sinners who cannot save ourselves and giving ourselves to Jesus Christ and asking Him to be our Savior. If you have done that, praise God. <laughs> and let this passage assure you, our champion is a worthy champion. He won the battle for us. If you haven't done that, do so today. Don't delay.
None of us are promised another day or hour. And none of us will stand on our own righteousness in the presence of God on Judgment Day. We are in Christ and saved. We are out of Christ and condemned. There is no alternative. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this beautiful passage. Um, <laughs> there were no witnesses to this. Jesus apparently shared it with his disciples because he knew they needed to hear it. And the Spirit inspired Matthew and Mark and Luke to give us this account because you knew we needed to hear it. We needed to be reminded that we are faithless, but there was a faithful one. That we do fail, but there was one who didn't. That we forfeit the battle, but there was one who was victorious. And that the hope of our salvation is in Jesus Christ, the faithful Son of God, who represents us in His righteousness, who substitutes Himself for us in sacrificing Himself for our sin, so that we can find salvation in Him, deliverance and help in times of temptation, and one day we'll be with Him forever and ever, when evil is finally separated from us, and we will enjoy you in perfect goodness and beauty and truth eternally. Thank you for this. We thank you for Christ in his name. Amen.